Hello, and welcome to the Antioch Fort Worth weekly podcast. At Antioch, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and his purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on a Sunday morning, please visit AntiochFortWorth.com. All right, good morning, everybody. We're finishing up this series, Live It Out in Love, today. And man, we've had some just incredible speakers down through these last several weeks. We're starting up a new series next week called Family Foundations. Going to be talking about the priority of family, the priority of parenting, the priority of marriage. Sound good? Something like that. So that's that's where we're headed. But this morning, you guys, we got a treat. Man, I love listening to Jason Cox preach. He is like, He's an interesting introvert that once he stands up here, man, he he can just bring the word of God. Y'all give it up for Jason Cox. Let's try that again. Howdy. Howdy. That's better. All right. So the original host of the public radio show, The Splendid Table, had a saying that there are two kinds of people in the world. The first, there's the people who wake up in the morning wondering what they're going to have for supper, and then there's the people who don't. And I am firmly in that first category. I love food. I love everything about it. I love the flavor. I love the process. I love the whole aesthetic of sitting around a table to eat. And I spend time and I look for recipes and I consult my flavor Bible trying to figure out what pairs well together. And so because I have this love for food, I do most of the cooking in my household because my wife, Summer, she eats for utility. So like I bring home some carrots from the farmer's market and she's thinking ranch or hummus. And I'm thinking about the cast iron skillet with the butter and the scallions and the cumin seeds and just a sprinkle of sea salt and the flavor explosion that's going to emerge from that. And I enjoy planning a menu for a group of friends and spending the day preparing and cooking and making sure everything's perfect. And I, I love food so much that I recently started running again. It's not because I like running. I run first thing in the morning because I know the day is not going to get any worse from there. But when I look at my waistline, I'm faced with three choices. I either go running, I say goodbye to my feet, or I change the way I eat. And that just doesn't seem like a good option to me. But around the first of the year, my wife was experiencing some health issues, and as part of her plan to get better, she needed to go through a thorough detox. So she comes home from her appointment, and she hands me this stack of papers, and it details out how for the foreseeable future, our meals need to be gluten-free, dairy-free, grain-free, sugar-free. And if it's not already knocked out there, I have to check the food on the, where it is on the glycemic index, and if it's too high, I have to eliminate it. Plus, here's another list of foods that, based on her blood type, who even knew that was a thing that she shouldn't be eating? And it just breaks my heart. And for a <laughs> brief moment... I'm imagining taking my beautiful wife, who I love, and placing her in an ice drift and just pushing her out to s- <laughs> Love you, dear. Bon voyage. But no, I am grieving in this moment. I'm grieving because I know this life of joy and vibrant flavors and satisfaction. But because of this brokenness, I'm looking ahead to a world that is bland and boring with no spice and no variety. It's just a dark, bleak world of cauliflower rice (laughs) and cauliflower steaks and cauliflower pizza crust with canned sugar-free tomato sauce and no cheese. I mean, what could be wrong with cheese? (laughs) And I'm just, I'm mourning because I know in my mind that it's not supposed 
to be this way. And the only way I can get through it is by looking ahead to a brighter day. Because as we get down the road, I can start gradually reintroducing some of these foods. And when that happens, I catch a glimpse of how things are supposed to be. And I look at people around me and I'm like, have you tried this? Have you tasted this? Come here, come here, take a bite of this. And in those moments, I catch a glimpse of a day that is coming when life is restored, when the detox is over and the table is prepared before me and the smells and the flavor and the transformation and the sounds of laughter and the popping of the cork, they all return, not just in moments and glimpses, but in fullness and joy. Can I get an amen? So I tell you this story about me because I think in a lot of ways, this is the story of all of us. It's the story of humankind. We look At the very beginning, in Genesis 1, we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, there are some words that in in Hebrew that when they're translated into English, the same Hebrew word can be translated into different English words. Does that make sense? So like this word ruah right here that's translated as spirit, other places in the Bible, they translate it as wind or breath. And there are other words that are similar, like nismet is another word, that same thing, kind of wind, breath, spirit, are kind of interchangeably used by the translators. So stick that in your hip pocket for a second. So the creation story continues. God separates the light from the dark, the earth from the sea. He creates all the vegetation, the stars in the sky, all of the animals. And then in Genesis 2, we see the description of his creation of man. And in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust to the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. There is something significant about this act of God breathing the breath of life into Adam. It's not just about animating the body that he created, because we've already seen him create all the animals, all the fish, all the birds. He formed them out of the ground, but there was no description of breathing life into them. So what is going on here? What is God doing? He is breathing his spirit into Adam. God is putting his spirit within mankind. We were made in the image of God by dust and the breath of God. And so God looks at his creation and he declares that it is all good. And he plants a garden in Eden with trees that are beautiful and produce delicious fruit. And he has a river running through it so that it waters the garden. And that's where he places Adam. And he creates for him a partner. And together they walk hand in hand with God. They are in an intimate, loving relationship with the creator of the universe. Everything was how it should be, how it was meant to be. But then tragedy enters the picture. The fall of man takes place, and when that happens, they didn't just break a rule, it broke a relationship. And you get to Genesis 3, and you see the heartbreaking words, where in verse 19, God says to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What's missing from that equation? breath of God. The Spirit of God is no longer in mankind. And so man leaves the garden, and because of their brokenness, the future 
looks bleak. It's a future filled with toil and pain and a memory that this is not how it was meant to be. It's a memory of the way things were and knowing that it should not be this way, but I've got no way to fix it. It doesn't stop them from trying. You see, over the next several centuries, how the people of God, they tried laws and kingdoms. They tried domination. They, they live in prosperity. They live in exile. But it doesn't matter how well or how poorly they do. They just cannot get back to that place. Then around 2,000 years ago, something happened that changed everything. Now, at that time, the world was dominated by the Roman Empire. It was a massive military, economic, social giant that ran all the way from England to India. It was the largest empire the world had ever seen. And it was ruled over by a series of emperors or Caesars who believed that they were the sons of God sent to earth to bring peace and prosperity to the world. And their propaganda at the time would say things like, there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved but that of Caesar. And they would declare that Caesar is Lord. And they would go around to different areas and they would go to the people who lived there and tell them that they must declare that Caesar is Lord. And if they did so, they became part of the Roman Empire and began paying taxes to Caesar. If they refused to do so, they would make an example of what happens to those who defy the empire. And they'd gotten really good at figuring out how to keep people in as much pain as possible for as long as possible without dying. And so they would crucify them on these execution stakes along a major thoroughfare so that everybody could see this is what happens if you do not submit to Caesar. In the town of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from, it's recorded that 3,000 people were executed at one point. So the empire continued to grow and grow, and the world knew that your choices were subjugation or death. This is how you were saved by Caesar. Depending on which side of the sword you were on, this is how Lord Caesar brought peace. And the people of God could look at the situation and say, yeah, this one's bigger, but we've seen this story before. Be it Egypt or Babylon or Rome, it doesn't really matter because we are dust, and to dust we will return. But then down in the corner of this empire, a movement began, and these people started insisting that their leader, their rabbi, this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, had been executed by the empire, but he had risen from the dead. This Jesus, he had been tortured and executed by the empire like so many before him, but this time the end was different. This time the end was not death. This time the end was not a return to dust. This time, there was resurrection, and it changed everything. And in today's world, we, far too many people fall into the trap of thinking that resurrection of Jesus is just about going to heaven when you die, or just about the forgiveness of our personal sins, but it is so much more than that. It is so much better than that. Resurrection opens a door where we can glimpse something better. We far too often miss this in our modern context, but it was not lost on the followers at the time they began to adopt that Roman military propaganda. And they would say, there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved but that of Jesus. And they would declare that Jesus is Lord. And this was incredibly subversive, incredibly dangerous, because what it did, it forced you to juxtapose the two, to say, whose way is better? To say, who is making a better world, Caesar or Jesus? Is the world made better through coercion and crushing military violence where you destroy anyone who doesn't submit to you? Or is the world made better through sacrificial love, through grace and forgiveness, through loving your neighbor as yourself? 
Who is making a better world, Caesar or Jesus? Who do you think is Lord? The resurrection of Jesus showed that all oppressive power, brutal regimes, that there is a, that there, they are temporary, that there is a power in the world that is greater than the bully. Resurrection was hope for anyone who had ever been oppressed, everyone, anyone who had ever known despair or hopelessness, anyone who had ever been marginalized or robbed of their dignity. Resurrection said that there is hope for you. Resurrection says suffering, death, and despair, they are not how the story ends. Resurrection isn't just about going someplace when you die. It's about a whole new kind of world. It's about the kingdom of God breaking out in the here and now. And when we catch a glimpse of it, our souls groan with longing, with a collective memory of saying, oh, that's how it's supposed to be. It's about the divine breaking into the here and now. It's about the whole world being rescued and renewed. And I don't think it's any coincidence that when Mary went looking for the body of Jesus, she did so in a garden. Because a garden is where everything went wrong. A garden was where she discovered that there was a new world bursting forth. God created the heavens and the earth. He looked over it all and he declared that it was all good. And resurrection is the affirmation that we are heading towards a kingdom. We are heading towards a new heaven and a new earth where we will all be good again. Isn't that awesome? But guess what? It gets better. So look at Jesus when he first appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. It's in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. And it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The resurrection brought the breath back. The cross is not about forgiveness of your sins. It, it, that's what it accomplished. But to say that the point of the cross is to get the barrier out of the way so that intimacy with God could be restored. Saying that the cross is about forgiveness of your sins is like saying that marriage is about ending singleness, right? Marriage does end singleness, but if you think that's the point of it, then your marriage is probably in trouble. <laughs> the cross and the resurrection were about removing the barrier to restore intimacy with the one you love so the Spirit could blow through your life and change you. So sin was moved out of the way so that life could return. And that's why in Peter's first sermon, he tells the story of Jesus on the cross, focusing on the resurrection. And he says that he's been exalted to the right hand of God, receiving from the Father the promised Holy Spirit whom he poured forth. Repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you put your faith in him, he puts his breath in you. He puts his life in you. He puts his spirit within you. You have an intimate relationship with the loving creator of the universe. And if we have that breath within us, if we have his spirit within us, we get to participate in the resurrection. And I'm not just talking about when the kingdom comes in its fullness or bodily resurrection. Think about it from this standpoint. Everybody breathe. Now, I'd be willing to bet there wasn't a single person in here who, when I said that, was like, 
well, gee, I'm glad he said something because I wasn't breathing at all until he did. No, it's, it's something that living things do. If you have life in you, you are going to breathe. It is so essential you don't even have to think about it. You don't even have to be conscious to do it. But notice that there are two parts to it. You breathe in and you breathe out. If the breath of God is in us, we should be breathing out into the world around us. And when that happens, God uses his sons and daughters to step into places of darkness and places of death and places of despair and to breathe new life into those situations. So I'd like to take a minute and share with you one way that that's looked like in my family. So first, let me introduce you to them. Um, The lady in the red shirt is Summer, my beautiful wife of 17 years. And then the taller guy in the Han Solo t-shirt, that is Elijah. He is 15. He's a talented musician, and he just got his driver's permit, so he is pushing his mother and I towards prayer. (laughs) Um, The guy in the gray shirt, that is Judah. He is smart and funny and inquisitive and just a joy to be around. And then the little girl on the right, that is Evangeline or Evie, and she is a little firecracker. And we can talk a little bit about her story today, because about 13 years ago, I was sitting at work, and I was listening to a podcast about, uh, from Focus on the Family, and that particular episode was about adoption. And I listened as they talked about the huge need for foster and adoptive parents, and the brokenness in the lives of these children, and the transformational life change that can take place when people are willing to show the love of Jesus and the character of God who adopted all of us as his sons and daughters by opening their hearts and their homes to children who've experienced profound trauma and loss. And I've got to confess to you, on more than one occasion, I've been the guy to ask the question, why is that person crying at work? But that day, compassion was stirred within me, and it wrecked me. It, I could not wait to get home that afternoon and tell Summer about what we'd heard and tell her how great it was going to be whenever we adopted a child. And so I did. I came home, and I told her about it, told her all about the program and how awesome it was going to be to take this love that we already had for our son, Elijah, and share it with somebody else. And she looked at me and was like, yeah, I don't think so. She had no desire to adopt whatsoever. She didn't think she could love an adopted child the same way that she'd loved a biological child. The money factor of it was intimidating. And, but my heart had been stirred. I would felt a call. I had felt an invitation from God to participate in his work of resurrection. So it stayed with me, and the Holy Spirit began to work on summer as well. Until a couple years later, we found ourselves calling an adoption agency asking for a packet of information. And through prayer and discussion, we settled in on uh, international adoption from the country of Ethiopia. And we had just recently had our second child. We weren't making hardly anything at the time. We were so close to the minimum requirements, I had to change my tax withholdings just so my take-home pay would be enough. But there's story over after story how God provided financially through that process. And we were approved, and we were placed on the wait list, and they told us we should get a referral in about six to nine months. And so three and a half years later, we receive a phone call, and in it, they tell us about this baby girl who had nobody, who the police 
had found her and brought her malnourished to a government orphanage where they slept four kids to a crib. And most of the kids didn't cry because they learned early on that it wasn't going to do them any good, that it wasn't going to get their needs met. And we received an email, and we opened up a picture, and we saw a photograph for the first time, this beautiful six-month-old girl, and our hearts melted like butter. And you know how much I like butter. (laughs) Any fear we had of not having the same love for her as we did for our other children instantly evaporated because she was our daughter. And when we first met her, she was so quiet and timid, and her development was delayed because she just laid in a crib all day. The back of her head was flat because she just laid there. But today, Evie is a girl who has a smile that will not quit. If you have crossed paths with her here, she has probably talked to you, and there's a better-than-average chance you've seen her do a cartwheel. That is not how her story was going to end. But because God breathed life into us, we could breathe a new story into that situation. There are tons of other examples where God has used adoption to breathe new life into situations. It's the story of a couple who met each other while serving on the mission field. They, they met, they fell in love, they got married, and they continued serving. And she worked at an orphanage there in that country. And they did the best they could to take care of those kids, but because of the conditions, the poverty, the spiritual darkness, they dug more small graves than anybody should have to. But when their time there was coming to a close, they both felt God was inviting them to adoption. And they knew that based on the laws of there, they could get a permit to adopt one child. And so how do you decide which child comes home with you and which children get left behind? But eventually they decided on this one baby girl that they were going to adopt, but their hearts were also tugged by this tiny baby boy who had a chronic ongoing medical issue. And so the day came that they went to pick up their paperwork, and much to their surprise, either by clerical error or just the divine hand of God, they had given them permission to bring home two children. And so, despite the fact that they were still newlyweds, that they were going to the U.S. with no jobs lined up, that they were stepping out in faith to adopt one child, let alone two, who, and one who had a, a chronic medical issue, they said yes to what the Lord had put before them. They brought both the children home, and time after time, the Lord provided. They didn't have to participate in resurrection. No one would have blamed them if they had said that that path was too difficult. But because they did, the end of the story changed. Before, the story would have ended in poverty, and more than likely, it would have ended in death. But instead, three weeks ago, a family of six with two thriving teenagers packed up their family to go out onto a new mission field to share the breath that was breathed into them. It's the story of a 13-year-old girl who has a boy by the head banging his head into the sidewalk over and over again. See, that boy had pushed over her little brother and hurt him. And when that happened, she was filled with such fear and rage that she snapped and she jumped on him. And the reason she had all this fear is because if her brother was really injured, he was going to have to go to the doctor. And if they went to the doctor, somebody was probably going to figure out that mom had disappeared several days ago, and she probably wasn't coming back. And when that happened, they would probably be separated from one another. And deep inside, she probably knew that this was not a secret that they could keep for long, but she was just desperately trying to hold things together for just a little bit longer. But eventually, the inevitable happened, and they both went into the foster care system. Now, 40% of children who go into the foster care system at age 12 or older never 
get adopted. They age out when they turn 18. Of those people who age out, 20% are instantly homeless. 50% of those children develop a substance abuse addiction. Of the boys who age out of the foster care system, 60% of them end up with a criminal record. And of the girls who age out, 71% of them end up pregnant by the time they hit 21. So to say that the future did not look good for this little girl would be an understatement. But there was this couple. He was a teacher. She was a speech pathologist. And God had poured his love into them, and it overflowed out of them into those around them. They weren't wealthy people. They weren't just trying to get by, but they felt God's call to participate in resurrection. And so they adopted this girl when she was around 16, along with her brothers, and taught her what it meant to be loved. Today, that girl is happily married. She has two children of her own that she loves unconditionally because her mom and dad showed her how. It's helped her to find compassion and forgiveness of her birth, for her birth mother, understanding just how broken she must have been to step away like what she did. And a few months ago, she wrote a love letter to her mom on Facebook. And in it, she said, I have long associated places of worship with my parents. I think it's the utter devotion they have to living their faith. Before I met them, most people I knew seemed to use their religion as a tool to separate themselves from others, a way to excuse their hate, a way to assure themselves that it did not matter how they actually lived their lives because they were church-going people. My parents love their neighbor and your neighbor. Their love is their primary personal trait. My mom and dad are love. To me, my parents are proof of the existence of God, the only proof I've ever needed. Before mom, I learned love was not unconditional, and it was not free. She taught me differently by loving me unconditionally, by never asking for anything in return. My mom is my guide, the person that I want to be. Folks, we are meant to overflow with love onto other people. And can you imagine what it looked like if the big C church in Tarrant County moved in mass and began breathing resurrection love over the county. Let's just, from an adoption standpoint, right now, there are approximately 230 kids in Tarrant County who are legally free for adoption. And I found a list online that showed there are 534 Christian churches in Tarrant County. Are you saying we couldn't do something about that? But even beyond that, what would it look like if the people of God began breathing the love of Jesus, began breathing resurrection life everywhere we go, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, how many lives would be changed? How many places of death would experience resurrection? The problem is that we have a tendency to hold our breath. Everyone try this with me for a second. Everybody, breathe in. Breathe in. Breathe in. How's that working for you? It's not how we're designed to operate. And if you do that for long enough, there will be no life left. But too often the church is a place where we run in on Sunday and we inhale all we can and we hold our breaths all week long. And some of you, you can't figure out why your life doesn't consist of seizing divine moments. You wonder why your life is so mundane, you, why God doesn't use you in a greater way, and it may just be that all you're doing is inhaling. Now, inhaling is good. I hope that you're inhaling faith, that you're inhaling hope and inspiration and courage and love, but then we need to exhale the life the world needs us to give. 
The power of the resurrection is the breath of God moving in and out of those who trust in Jesus. We are meant to be ambassadors of the kingdom. We are meant to be little life factories moving around the world. And when we are breathing resurrection, people should look around us and see people filled with joy, people filled with hope, people filled with peace because you have been breathing out what was breathed into you. When that becomes the case, people are going to be coming up to you begging for mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Will you breathe this life into me? Can everybody stand and can the ministry and worship teams go ahead and come forward? I need to be clear on something, though. Just because we do our part and we breathe life and love into a situation doesn't mean that it's all going to be happy and easy. You have to remember, we live in the in-between. Through the resurrection of Jesus, the breath came back, but there's still a deep brokenness in the world. We're still waiting for the kingdom to come in its fullness. We're longing for it, and we're catching glimpses of it, but we're not there yet. That couple who adopted the teenage girl, they adopted seven children and had one biological child. Two of those kids they adopted are deep in addiction. One of them can't shake the thought that his mom left because he was a bad kid. Relationships are hard for them. The girl will tell you that her marriage is just a struggle, and it's only because she's been through counseling and can recognize the root of that pain, recognize the root of those feelings that they're able to work through it. Adoption is so good, but adoption is so hard. There is so much loss and so much brokenness, and I talk about adoption because it's my story, and who knows, it may be your story too, but it's not everybody's story here. It can be any place where we step out on faith, trying to breathe the love of Jesus into it. Sometimes we breathe life into a situation, but the grave clothes linger. The relationship doesn't get reconciled. The addiction continues. The person never comes to know the Lord. Sometimes we do everything we feel God is calling us to do, and we don't get the results that we hoped for. But this is the in-between. Resurrection insists that whatever the suffering or darkness or betrayal is, it does not have the last word. When we encounter the pain, when the world blows up in our face, we acknowledge it, we mourn it, but do not be deceived for one second that the last word has been spoken because a day is coming when life is going to be restored, when the brokenness is over, when the table is prepared before you, when the smells, the flavor, the, sound, the transformation, the sounds of laughter and the popping of the cork, they all return, not just in moments and glimpses, but in fullness and joy. We have people up here who would love to pray with you this morning. If you have an area of your life where you need new life breathed into it, we invite you to come. We would love to do that. If there's a situation where the grave clothes still linger, come, let us lament with you and declare over the lies and despair that we know who gets to write the ending of that story. If you realize that you've been moving around the world holding your breath, find somebody to pray with you that you would have the courage and boldness to breathe resurrection life into the world around you. Or if you're here this morning and you have never put your faith in Jesus, if you've never experienced the love and resurrection that he has to offer, we would love to talk and pray with you about this morning. If there's any area of your life at all where you need some prayer, you need new life breathed into it, we invite you to come this morning as we sing.